The Essential Destiny of Reason, Subsection 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. The Essential Destiny of Reason, Subsection 3. The Shape which the perfect embodiment of spirit assumes. The third point to be analyzed is, therefore, what is the object to be realized by these means? That is, what is the form it assumes in the realm of reality? We have spoken of means, but in the carrying out of a subjective limited aim we have also to take into consideration the element of a material, either already present, or which has to be procured. Thus, the question would arise, what is the material in which the ideal of reason is wrought out? The primary answer would be, personality itself, human desires, subjectivity, generally. In human knowledge and volition, as its material element, reason attains positive existence, we have considered subjective volition where it has an object which is the truth and essence of a reality, namely, where it constitutes a great world historical passion. As a subjective will occupied with limited passions, it is dependent and can gratify its desires only within the limits of this dependence. But the subjective will has also a substantial life, a reality, in which it moves in the region of essential being, and has the essential itself as the object of its existence. This essential being is the union of the subjective with the rational will. It is the moral whole, the state, which is that form of reality in which the individual has and enjoys his freedom. But on the condition of his recognizing, believing in, and willing, that which is common to the whole. And this must not be understood, as if the subjective will of the social unit attained its gratification and enjoyment through that common will, as if this were a means provided for its benefit, as if the individual, in his relations to other individuals, thus limited his freedom in order that this universal limitation, the mutual constraint of all, might secure a small space of liberty for each. Rather, we affirm our law, morality, government, and they alone the positive reality and completion of freedom. Freedom of a low and limited order is mere caprice, which finds its exercise in the sphere of particular and limited desires. Subject of volition, passion, is that which sets men in activity, that which effects practical realization. The idea is the inner spring of action, the state is the actually existing realized moral life, for it is the unity of the universal, essential will, with that of the individual, and this is morality. 
the individual living in this unity has a moral life possesses a value that consists in this substantiality alone sophocles in his antigone says the divine commands are not of yesterday nor of today no they have an infinite existence and no one could say whence they came the laws of morality are not accidental but are the essentially rational it is the very object of the state that what is essential in the practical activity of men and in their dispositions should be duly recognized that it should have a manifest existence and maintain its position it is the absolute interest of reason that this moral whole should exist and herein lies the justification and merit of heroes who have founded states however rude these may have been in our history of the world only those peoples can come under our notice which form a state for it must be understood that this latter is the realization of freedom that is of the absolute final aim and that it exists for its own sake it must further be understood that all the worth which the human being possesses all spiritual reality he possesses only through the state for his spiritual reality consists in this that his own essence reason is objectively present to him that it possesses objective immediate existence for him thus only is he fully conscious thus only is he a partaker of morality of a just and moral social and political life for truth is the unity of the universal and subjective will and the universal is to be found in the state in its laws its universal and rational arrangements the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth we have in it therefore the object of history in a more definite shape than before that in which freedom obtains objectivity and lives in the enjoyment of this objectivity for law is the objectivity of spirit volition in its true form only that will which obeys law is free for it obeys itself it is independent and so free when the state or our country constitutes a community of existence when the subjective will of man submits to laws the contradiction between liberty and necessity vanishes the rational has necessary existence as being the reality and substance of things and we are free in recognizing it as law and following it as the substance of our own being the objective and the subjective will are then reconciled and present one identical homogeneous whole for the morality sittlichkeit of the state is not of that ethical moralische reflective kind in which one's own conviction bears sway this latter is rather the peculiarity of the modern time while the true antique morality is based on the principle of abiding by one's duty to the state at large 
an Athenian citizen did what was required of him, as it were, from instinct. But if I reflect on the object of my activity, I must have the consciousness that my will has been called into exercise. But morality is duty, substantial right, a second nature, as it has been justly called. For the first nature of man is his primary, merely animal existence. The development in extenso of the idea of the state belongs to the philosophy of jurisprudence. But it must be observed that in the theories of our time various errors are current respecting it, which pass for established truths, and have become fixed prejudices. We will mention only a few of them, giving prominence to such as have a reference to the object of our history. The error which first meets us is the direct contradictory of our principle that the state presents the realization of freedom, the opinion, namely, that man is free by nature, but that in society, in the state, to which, nevertheless, he is irresistibly impelled, he must limit this natural freedom. That man is free by nature is quite correct in one sense, namely that he is so according to the idea of humanity. But we imply thereby that he is such only in virtue of his destiny, that he has an undeveloped power to become such, for the nature of an object is exactly synonymous with its idea. But the view in question imports more than this, when man is spoken of as free by nature, the mode of his existence as well as his destiny is implied. His merely natural and primary condition is intended. In this sense, a state of nature is assumed, in which mankind at large are in the possession of their natural rights, with the unconstrained exercise and enjoyment of their freedom. This assumption is not indeed raised to the dignity of the historical fact. It would, indeed, be difficult were the attempt seriously made to point out any such condition as actually existing, or as having ever occurred. Examples of a savage state of life can be pointed out, but they are marked by brutal passions and deeds of violence, while, however rude and simple their conditions, they involve social arrangements which, to use the common phrase, restrain freedom. That assumption is one of those nebulous images which theory produces, an idea which it cannot avoid originating, but which it fathers upon real existence, without sufficient historical justification. What we find such a state of nature to be in actual experience answers exactly to the idea of a merely natural condition. Freedom as the ideal of that which is original and natural does not exist as original and natural. Rather must it be first sought out and won, and that by an incalculable medial discipline of the intellectual and moral powers. The state of nature is therefore predominantly that of injustice and violence, of untamed natural impulses, of inhuman deeds and feelings. Limitation is certainly produced by society and the state, 
but it is a limitation of the mere brute emotions and rude instincts, as also, in a more advanced stage of culture, of the premeditated self-will of caprice and passion. This kind of constraint is part of the instrumentality by which only the consciousness of freedom and the desire for its attainment in its true, that is, rational and ideal, form can be attained. To the ideal of freedom, law and morality are indispensably requisite, and they are in and for themselves universal existences, objects, and aims, which are discovered only by the activity of thought, separating itself from the merely sensuous, and developing itself in opposition thereto, and which must, on the other hand, be introduced into and incorporated with the originally sensuous will, and that contrarily to its natural inclination. The perpetually recurring misapprehension of freedom consists in regarding that term only in its formal, subjective sense, abstracted from its essential objects and aims. Thus, a constraint put upon impulse, desire, passion, pertaining to the particular individual as such, a limitation of caprice and self-will, is regarded as a fettering of freedom. We should, on the contrary, look upon such limitation as the indispensable proviso of emancipation. Society and the state are the very conditions in which freedom is realized. We must notice a second view, contravening the principle of the development of moral relations into a legal form. The patriarchal condition is regarded, either in reference to the entire race of man or to some branches of it, as exclusively that condition of things in which the legal element is combined with a due recognition of the moral and emotional parts of our nature, and in which justice, as united with these, truly and really influences the intercourse of the social units. The basis of the patriarchal condition is the family relation, which develops the primary form of conscious morality, succeeded by that of the state, as its second phase. The patriarchal condition is one of transition, in which the family has already advanced to the position of a race or people, where the union, therefore, has already ceased to be simply a bond of love and confidence, and has become one of plighted service. We must first examine the ethical principle of the family. The family may be reckoned as virtually a single person, since its members have either mutually surrendered their individual personality, and consequently their legal position towards each other with the rest of their particular interests and desires, as in the case of the parents, or have not yet attained such an independent personality, the children, who are primarily in that merely natural condition already mentioned. They live, therefore, in a unity of feeling, love, confidence, and faith in each other. And in a relation of mutual love, the one individual has the consciousness of himself in the consciousness of the other. He lives out of self, and in this mutual self-renunciation each regains the life that had been virtually transferred to the other, gains, in fact, that other's existence and his own, as involved with that other. 
the farther interests connected with the necessities and external concerns of life, as well as the development that has to take place within their circle, that is, of the children, constitute a common object for the members of the family. The spirit of the family, the penates, form one substantial being, as much as the spirit of a people in the state, and morality in both cases consists in a feeling, a consciousness, and a will, not limited to individual personality and interest, but embracing the common interests of the members generally. But this unity is in the case of the family essentially one of feeling, not advancing beyond the limits of the merely natural. The piety of the family relation should be respected in the highest degree by the state. By its means the state obtains as its members individuals who are already moral, for as mere persons they are not, and who, in uniting to form a state, bring with them that sound basis of a political edifice, the capacity of feeling one with a whole. But the expansion of the family to a patriarchal unity carries us beyond the ties of blood relationship, the simply natural elements of that basis, and outside of these limits the members of the community must enter upon the position of independent personality. A review of the patriarchal condition, in extenso, would lead us to give special attention to the theocratical constitution. The head of the patriarchal clan is also its priest. If the family, in its general relations, is not yet separated from civic society in the state, the separation of religion from it has also not yet taken place. And so much the less, since the piety of the hearth is itself a profoundly subjective state of feeling. We have considered two aspects of freedom, the objective and the subjective. If, therefore, freedom is asserted to consist in the individuals of a state, all agreeing in its arrangements, it is evident that only the subjective aspect is regarded. The natural inference from this principle is that no law can be valid without the approval of all. This difficulty is attempted to be obviated by the decision that the minority must yield to the majority. The majority therefore bear the sway. But long ago, Jean-Jacques Rousseau remarked that, in that case, there would be no longer freedom, for the will of the minority would cease to be respected. At the Polish Diet, each single member had to give his consent before any political step could be taken, and this kind of freedom it was that ruined the state. Besides, it is a dangerous and false prejudice that the people alone have reason and insight, and know what justice is, for each popular faction may represent itself as the people, and the question as to what constitutes the state is one of advanced science, and not of popular decision. If the principle of regard for the individual will is recognized as the only basis of political liberty, namely, 
that nothing should be done by or for the state to which all the members of the body politic have not given their sanction, we have, properly speaking, no constitution. The only arrangement that would be necessary would be, first, a center having no will of its own, but which should take into consideration what appeared to be the necessities of the state, and secondly, a contrivance for calling the members of the state together, for taking the votes, and for performing the arithmetical operations of reckoning and comparing the number of votes for the different propositions, and thereby deciding upon them. The state is an abstraction, having even its generic existence in its citizens. But it is an actuality, and its simply generic existence must embody itself in individual will and activity. The want of government and political administration in general is felt. This necessitates the selection and separation from the rest of those who have to take the helm in political affairs, to decide concerning them, and to give orders to other citizens with a view to the execution of their plans. If, for example, even the people in a democracy resolve on a war, a general must head the army. It is only by a constitution that the abstraction, the state, attains life and reality. But this involves the distinction between those who command and those who obey. Yet obedience seems inconsistent with liberty. And those who command appear to do the very opposite of that which the fundamental idea of the state, namely that of freedom, requires. It is, however, urged that Though the distinction between commanding and obeying is absolutely necessary, because affairs could not go on without it, and indeed this seems only a compulsory limitation, external to and even contravening freedom in the abstract, the Constitution should be at least so framed that the citizens may obey as little as possible, and the smallest modicum of free volition be left to the commands of the superiors that the substance of that for which subordination is necessary, even in its most important bearings, should be decided and resolved on by the people, by the will of many, or of all of the citizens, though it be supposed to be thereby provided that the state should be possessed of vigor and strength as a reality and individual unity. The primary consideration is, then, the distinction between the governing and the governed, and political constitutions in the abstract have been rightly divided into monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, which gives occasion, however, to the remark that monarchy itself must be further divided into despotism and monarchy proper, that, in all the divisions to which the leading idea gives rise, only the generic character is to be made prominent, it being not intended thereby that the particular category under review should be exhausted as a form, order, or kind in its concrete development. But especially, it must be observed that the above-mentioned divisions admit of a multitude of particular modifications, not only such as lie within the limits of those classes themselves, 
but also such as are mixtures of several of these essentially distinct classes, and which are consequently misshapen, unstable, and inconsistent forms. In such a collision, the concerning question is, what is the best constitution? That is, by what arrangement, organization, or mechanism of the power of the state, its object can be most surely attained. This object may indeed be variously understood, for instance, as the calm enjoyment of life on the part of the citizens, or as universal happiness. Such aims have suggested the so-called ideals of constitutions and, as a particular branch of the subject, ideals of the education of princes, or of the governing body, the aristocracy at large, for the chief point they treat of is the condition of those subjects who stand at the head of affairs. And in these ideals the concrete details of political organization are not at all considered. The inquiry into the best constitution is frequently treated as if not only the theory were an affair of subjective independent conviction, but as if the introduction of a constitution recognized as the best, or as superior to others, could be the result of a resolve adopted in this theoretical manner, as if the form of a constitution were a matter of free choice, determined by nothing else but reflection. Of this artless fashion was that deliberation, not indeed of the Persian people, but of the Persian grandees, who had conspired to overthrow the pseudo-Smerdis and the Magi, after their undertaking had succeeded, and when there was no scion of the royal family living, as to what constitution they should introduce into Persia, and Herodotus gives an equally naive account of this deliberation. In the present day, the constitution of a country and people is not represented as so entirely dependent on free and deliberate choice. The fundamental but abstractly, and therefore imperfectly, entertained conception of freedom has resulted in the republic being very generally regarded, in theory, as the only just and true political constitution. Many even who occupy elevated official positions under monarchical constitutions, so far from being opposed to this idea, are actually its supporters. Only they see that such a constitution, though the best, cannot be realized under all circumstances, and that, while men are what they are, we must be satisfied with less freedom. The monarchical constitution under the given circumstances and the present moral condition of the people being even regarded as the most advantageous. In this view also, the necessity of a particular constitution is made to depend on the condition of the people in such a way as if the latter were non-essential and accidental. This representation is founded on the distinction which the reflective understanding makes between an idea and the corresponding reality. Holding to an abstract and consequently untrue idea, not grasping it in its completeness, or, which is virtually, though not in point of form, the same, not taking a concrete view of a people and a state. 
we shall have to show farther on that the constitution adopted by people makes one substance, one spirit, with its religion, its art and philosophy, or at least with its conceptions and thoughts, its culture generally. Not to expatiate upon the additional influences, ab extra, of climate, of neighbors, of its place in the world. A state is an individual totality of which you cannot select any particular side, although a supremely important one, such as its political constitution, and deliberate and decide respecting it in that isolated form. Not only is that constitution most intimately connected with and dependent on those other spiritual forces, but the form of the entire moral and intellectual individuality, comprising all the forces it embodies, is only a step in the development of the grand whole, with its place pre-appointed in the process, a fact which gives the highest sanction to the constitution in question, and establishes its absolute necessity. The origin of a state involves imperious lordship on the one hand, instinctive submission on the other. But even obedience, lordly power, and the fear inspired by a ruler, in itself implies some degree of voluntary connection. Even in barbarous states this is the case. It is not the isolated will of individuals that prevails. Individual pretensions are relinquished, and the general will is the essential bond of political union. This unity of the general and the particular is the idea itself, manifesting itself as a state, and which, subsequently, undergoes further development within itself. The abstract yet necessitated process in the development of truly independent states is as follows. They begin with regal power, whether of patriarchal or military origin. In the next phase, particularity and individuality assert themselves in the form of aristocracy and democracy. Lastly, we have the subjection of these separate interests to a single power, but which can be absolutely none other than one outside of which those spheres have an independent position, namely, the monarchial. Two phases of royalty, therefore, must be distinguished, a primary and a secondary one. This process is necessitated so that the form of government assigned to a particular stage of development must present itself. It is therefore no matter of choice, but is that form which is adapted to the spirit of the people. In a constitution, the main feature of interest is the self-development of the rational, that is, the political condition of a people, the setting free of the successive elements of the idea, so that the several powers in the state manifest themselves as separate, attain their appropriate and special perfection, and yet, in this independent condition, work together for one object, and are held together by it, that is, form an organic whole. The state is thus the embodiment of rational freedom, realizing and recognizing itself in an objective form, 
for its objectivity consists in this, that its successive stages are not merely ideal, but are present in an appropriate reality, and that in their separate and several workings they are absolutely merged in that agency by which the totality, the soul, the individuate unity is produced, and of which it is the result. The state is the idea of spirit in the external manifestation of human will and its freedom. It is to the state, therefore, that change in the aspect of history indissolubly attaches itself, and the successive phases of the idea manifest themselves in it as distinct political principles. The constitutions under which world historical peoples have reached their culmination are peculiar to them, and therefore do not present a generally applicable political basis. Were it otherwise, the differences of similar constitutions would consist only in a peculiar method of expanding and developing that generic basis, whereas they really originate in diversity of principle. From the comparison, therefore, of the political institutions of the ancient world historical peoples, it so happens that, for the most recent principle of a constitution, for the principle of our own times, nothing, so to speak, can be learned. In science and art, it is quite otherwise. For example, the ancient philosophy is so decidedly the basis of the modern that it is inevitably contained in the latter and constitutes its basis. In this case, the relation is that of a continuous development of the same structure whose foundation stone, walls, and roof have remained what they were. In art, the Greek itself, in its original form, furnishes us the best models. But in regard to political constitution, it is quite otherwise. Here the ancient and the modern have not their essential principle in common. Abstract definitions and dogmas respecting just government, importing that intelligence and virtue ought to bear sway, are indeed common to both. But nothing is so absurd as to look to Greeks, Romans, or Orientals for models for the political arrangements of our time. From the East may be derived beautiful pictures of a patriarchal condition, of paternal government, and of devotion to it on the part of peoples, from Greeks and Romans descriptions of popular liberty. Among the latter we find the idea of a free constitution, admitting all the citizens to share in deliberations and resolves respecting the affairs and laws of the commonwealth. In our times, too, this is its general acceptation, only with this modification, that, since our states are so large, and there are so many of the many, the latter, direct action being impossible, should by the indirect method of elective substitution express their concurrence with resolves affecting the common weal. That is, that for legislative purposes generally the people should be represented by deputies. The so-called representative constitution is that form of government with which we connect the idea of a free constitution, and this notion has become a rooted prejudice. On this theory, 
people and government are separated. But there is a perversity in this antithesis, an ill-intentioned ruse designed to insinuate that the people are the totality of the state. Besides, the basis of this view is the principle of isolated individuality, the absolute validity of the subjective will, a dogma which we have already investigated. The great point is that freedom in its ideal conception has not subjective will and caprice for its principle, but the recognition of the universal will, and that the process by which freedom is realized is the free development of its successive stages. The subjective will is a merely formal determination, a carte blanche, not including what it is that is willed. Only the rational will is that universal principle which independently determines and unfolds its own being, and develops its successive elemental phases as organic members. Of this Gothic cathedral architecture, the ancients knew nothing. At an earlier stage of the discussion, we established the two elemental considerations. First, the idea of freedom as the absolute and final aim. Secondly, the means for realizing it, that is, the subjective side of knowledge and will with its life, movement, and activity. We then recognize the state as the moral whole and the reality of freedom, and consequently as the objective unity of these two elements. For although we make this distinction in two aspects for our consideration, it must be remarked that they are intimately connected, and that their connection is involved in the idea of each when examined separately. We have on the one hand recognized the idea in the definite form of freedom conscious of and willing itself, having itself alone as its object, involving at the same time the pure and simple idea of reason, and likewise that which we have called subject, self-consciousness, spirit actually existing in the world. If, on the other hand, we consider subjectivity, we find that subjective knowledge and will is thought, but by the very act of thoughtful cognition and volition I will the universal object, the substance of absolute reason. We observe, therefore, an essential union between the objective side, the idea, and the subjective side, the personality that conceives and wills it. The objective existence of this union is the state, which is therefore the basis and center of the other concrete elements of the life of a people, of art, of law, of morals, of religion, of science. All the activity of spirit has only this object, the becoming conscious of this union, that is, of its own freedom. Among the forms of this conscious union, religion occupies the highest position, in it, spirit, rising above the limitations of temporal and secular existence, becomes conscious of the absolute spirit, and in this consciousness of the self-existent being renounces its individual interest. It lays this aside in devotion, 
a state of mind in which it refuses to occupy itself any longer with a limited and particular. By sacrifice man expresses his renunciation of his property, his will, his individual feelings. The religious concentration of the soul appears in the form of feeling. It nevertheless passes also into reflection. A form of worship is a result of reflection. The second form of the union of the objective and subjective in the human spirit is art. This advances farther into the realm of the actual and sensuous than religion. In its noblest walk, it is occupied with representing, not indeed the spirit of God, but certainly the form of God, and in its secondary aims, that which is divine and spiritual generally. Its office is to render visible the divine, presenting it to the imaginative and intuitive faculty. But the true is the object not only of conception and feeling, as in religion, and of intuition, as in art, but also of the thinking faculty, and this gives us the third form of the union in question, philosophy. This is consequently the highest, freest, and wisest phase. Of course, we are not intending to investigate these three phases here. They have only suggested themselves in virtue of their occupying the same general ground as the object here considered, the state. The general principle which manifests itself and becomes an object of consciousness in the state, the form under which all that the state includes is brought, is the whole of that cycle of phenomena which constitutes the culture of a nation. But the definite substance that receives the form of universality and exists in that concrete reality which is the state is the spirit of the people itself. The actual state is animated by this spirit in all its particular affairs, its wars, institutions, etc. But man must also attain a conscious realization of this, his spirit and essential nature, and of his original identity with it. For we said that morality is the identity of the subjective or personal with the universal will. Now the mind must give itself an express consciousness of this, and the focus of this knowledge is religion. Art and science are only various aspects and forms of the same substantial being. In considering religion, the chief point of inquiry is whether it recognizes the true, the idea, only in its separate abstract form or in its true unity. In separation, God being represented in an abstract form as the highest being, Lord of heaven and earth, living in a remote region far from human actualities, or in its unity, God as the unity of the universal and individual, the individual itself assuming the aspect of positive and real existence in the idea of the Incarnation. Religion is the sphere in which a nation gives itself the definition of that which it regards as the true. A definition contains everything that belongs to the essence of an object. Reducing its nature, 
to its simple characteristic predicate, as a mirror for every predicate, the generic soul pervading all its details. The conception of God, therefore, constitutes the general basis of a people's character. In this aspect, religion stands in the closest connection with the political principle. Freedom can exist only where individuality is recognized as having its positive and real existence in the divine being. The connection may be further explained thus. Secular existence, as merely temporal, occupied with particular interests, is consequently only relative and unauthorized, and receives its validity only in as far as the universal soul that pervades it, its principle, receives absolute validity, which it cannot have unless it is recognized as the definite manifestation, the phenomenal existence, of the divine essence. On this account it is that the state rests on religion. We hear this often repeated in our times, though for the most part nothing further is meant than that individual subjects, as God-fearing men, would be more disposed and ready to perform their duty, since obedience to king and law so naturally follows in the train of reverence for God. This reverence, indeed, since it exalts the general over the special, may even turn upon the latter, become fanatical, and work with incendiary and destructive violence against the state, its institutions and arrangements. Religious feeling, therefore, it is thought, should be sober, kept in a certain degree of coolness, that it may not storm against and bear down that which should be defended and preserved by it. The possibility of such a catastrophe is at least latent in it. While, however, the correct sentiment is adopted, that the state is based on religion, the position thus assigned to religion supposes the state already to exist, and that, subsequently, in order to maintain it, religion must be brought into it, in buckets and bushels, as it were, and impressed upon people's hearts. It is quite true that men must be trained to religion, but not as to something whose existence has yet to begin. For, in affirming that the state is based on religion, that it has its roots in it, we virtually assert that the former has proceeded from the latter, and that this derivation is going on now and will always continue, that is, the principles of the state must be regarded as valid in and for themselves, which can only be in so far as they are recognized as determinate manifestations of the divine nature. The form of religion, therefore, decides that of the state and its constitution. The latter actually originated in the particular religion adopted by the nation, so that, in fact, the Athenian or the Roman state was possible only in connection with the specific form of heathenism existing among the respective peoples, just as a Catholic state has a spirit and constitution different from that of a Protestant one. If that outcry, that urging and striving for the implantation of religion in the community, were an utterance of anguish and a call for help, as it often seems to be, 
expressing the danger of religion having vanished, or being about to vanish entirely from the state, that would be fearful indeed, worse in fact, than this outcry supposes. For it implies the belief in a resource against the evil, namely, the implantation and inculcation of religion, whereas religion is by no means a thing to be so produced, its self-production, and there can be no other, lies much deeper. Another and opposite folly which we meet with in our time is that of pretending to invent and carry out political constitutions independently of religion. The Catholic Confession, although sharing the Christian name with the Protestant, does not concede to the state an inherent justice and morality, a concession which, in the Protestant principle, is fundamental. This tearing away of the political morality of the Constitution from its natural connection is necessary to the genius of that religion, inasmuch as it does not recognize justice and morality as independent and substantial, but thus excluded from intrinsic worth, torn away from their last refuge, the sanctuary of conscience, the calm retreat where religion has its abode, the principles and institutions of political legislation are destitute of a real center, to the same degree as they are compelled to remain abstract and indefinite. Summing up what has been said of the state, we find that we have been led to call its vital principle as actuating the individuals who compose it morality. The state its laws, its arrangements, constitute the rights of its members. Its natural features, its mountains, air, and waters, are their country, their fatherland, their outward material property. The history of this state, their deeds. What their ancestors have produced belongs to them and lives in their memory. All is their possession, just as they are possessed by it for it constitutes their existence, their being. Their imagination is occupied with the ideas thus presented, while the adoption of these laws and of a fatherland so conditioned is the expression of their will. It is this matured totality which thus constitutes one being, the spirit of one people. To it the individual members belong, each unit is the son of his nation, and at the same time, in as far as the state to which he belongs is undergoing development, the son of his age. None remains behind it, still less advances beyond it. This spiritual being, the spirit of his time, is his. He is a representative of it, it is that in which he originated, and in which he lives. Among the Athenians the word Athens had a double import, suggesting primarily a complex of political institutions, but no less, in the second place, that goddess who represented the spirit of the people and its unity. This spirit of a people 
is a determinate and a particular spirit, and is, as just stated, further modified by the degree of its historical development. This spirit, then, constitutes the basis and substance of those other forms of a nation's consciousness which have been noticed. For spirit, in its self-consciousness, must become an object of contemplation to itself, and objectivity involves, in the first instance, the rise of differences which make up a total of distinct spheres of objective spirit, in the same way as the soul exists only as the complex of its faculties, which, in their form of concentration in a simple unity, produce that soul. It is thus one individuality which, presented in its essence as God, is honored and enjoyed in religion, which is exhibited as an object of sensuous contemplation in art, and is apprehended as an intellectual conception in philosophy. In virtue of the original identity of their essence, purport, and object, these various forms are inseparably united with the spirit of the state. Only in connection with this particular religion can this particular political constitution exist, just as in such or such a state, such or such a philosophy or order of art. The remark, next in order, is that each particular national genius is to be treated as only one individual in the process of universal history. For that history is the exhibition of the divine, absolute development of spirit in its highest forms, that gradation by which it attains its truth and consciousness of itself. The forms which these grades of progress assume are the characteristic national spirits of history, the peculiar tenor of their moral life, of their government, their art, religion, and science. To realize these grades is the boundless impulse of the world spirit, the goal of its irresistible urging. For this division into organic members, and the full development of each, is its idea. Universal history is exclusively occupied with showing how spirit comes to a recognition and adoption of the truth. The dawn of knowledge appears. It begins to discover salient principles, and at last it arrives at full consciousness. Having, therefore, learned the abstract characteristics of the nature of spirit, the means which it uses to realize its idea, and the shape assumed by it in its complete realization in phenomenal existence, namely the state, nothing further remains for this introductory section to contemplate but the course of the world's history. End The Essential Destiny of Reason Subsection 3 The Shape Which the Perfect Embodiment of Spirit Assumes this recording is in the public domain.